and this is his story. He said, I was living in Roslyn, New York. One day I thought of the first two lines of this song. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing there's just too little of. Then I needed the, the verse section. When I began to write the first verse, everything I thought about just seemed wrong. We don't need a plane to fly faster. We don't need a submarine to go deeper. I tried and tried, showed it to Bert, then put it away and went on to something else. It was always the same thing. I needed something to compare it to. Everything I thought about had nothing to do with the person I was talking to, God. It took more time to write these lyrics than any other. I realised that I needed to write the antithesis, what we didn't need. One day on the ride to New York, it came to me. Lord, we don't need another mountain. There are mountains and hillsides enough to climb. There are oceans and rivers enough to cross, enough to last till the end of time. I knew that was it. I wrote about all of the things that had to do with nature and what God gives us. I gave the lyrics to Bert and he wrote a fabulous melody. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing there's just too little of. Well, Peter was in need of <clears throat> more than just a song. He was in the need of the real thing. Peter's calling and his career, if you like, as a disciple was full of human failure and disappointment. I just want to run through a few of the highlights or maybe not highlights of his, his career as a disciple so we get something of a picture of Peter as a person in the beginning of um, Simon Peter's calling remember the Lord said to him in the beginning of John you are Peter uh, or rather you are Simon and you will be called Peter a stone from, uh, from a stone to a rock and on this rock I will build my kingdom that's a pretty good encouraging start to a career as a disciple and then later on as many of the disciples began to realise those who were following Jesus began to realise that actually what Jesus was teaching was pretty hard stuff and many of them turned back and said well we can't follow Jesus anymore this is too hard and Jesus asked him what about you, Peter? And he replied, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. A good start and a promise to a promising career. But as we find out a little bit further on, Peter was impulsive and he did a lot of things um, in the flesh, if you like. And one of the first of his failures was to to walk on the water if it's you Jesus he said tell me to come to you on the water and at the beginning he began to walk on the water and that was great and then he saw the wind and the waves and his faith began to shrink and he began to think and Jesus if you remember had to reach out and rescue him a little bit further on Jesus is teaching and uh, he's teaching on what makes a man unclean and Jesus is explaining it's actually not what goes into a person into his stomach that makes him unclean 
but it's what comes out of a heart, out of your heart, that makes a person unclean. Pretty clear teaching. And uh, Peter asks him, oh, "Hang on a minute, what do you mean by that?" And Jesus rebukes him for being so dull. Things are not looking too good at the moment. A little bit further on, Peter leaps to Jesus' side and when Jesus is explaining that actually he's been born to die and he's going to be crucified, Peter said, no, this is never going to happen to you, Lord. No way, I'm not going to let this happen to you. What did Jesus say? He turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Peter's beginning to feel, hmm, I'm making a bit of a mess of this. This isn't going too well. And then if you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's Peter with the other two, John and James. And Jesus is transfigured. And there appears Elijah and Moses. And Peter's all excited. Oh, what can I do? What can I do? This is great. Let's do something for Jesus. Should we build three shelters? That would be great. And he gets rebuked for that. And then a little bit later on, he's trying to justify himself when Jesus is teaching about forgiveness. Well, how many times should I forgive these people? Look, you know, they're doing this wrong and they're doing that wrong and I'm forgiving them. How many times should I forgive people? I think seven times is a pretty good number. And again, Jesus rebukes him and says, seven times? No, 70 times seven, Peter. You're just not getting it, are you? And then we come to the last day of Jesus' life on earth. And in Matthew 26, he's teaching the disciples that actually, I really am going to die. And I'm going to some place where you can't come. And Peter replies, if all else, if everybody else leaves you, if everybody else runs away from you, me? No. I'll never deny you. I'll follow you wherever you go, even if it means to die. His intentions are great. And then Jesus says, actually, Peter, no. You're going to deny me. Before the cock crows twice, you're going to have denied me three times. Peter's beginning to feel like, I'm making a mess of this, aren't I? Then they're in the garden, across the Kidron Valley, up in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Lord goes to one side, and he prays, and he comes back, and Peter's asleep. And again, he gets rebuked, and he says, Peter, couldn't you even stay awake for one hour? In my hour of trial, you couldn't stay awake Peter's beginning to feel he's making a real mess of things now. He can't even stay awake for an hour. He's nodding off. And then the soldiers come, and as we heard this morning, Peter pulls out his sword or his knife or his dagger and has a go at one of the guards and slices off his ear. Again, Jesus rebukes him. Peter, stop it. Put that thing away. 
And then finally, all the disciples leave, but Peter and John, they follow Jesus at a distance and they go into the courtyard. And I'd just like to read that scene for a moment from Matthew's, uh, sorry, from Mark's rendering. If you turn to Mark 14, we get something of the picture we saw this morning, felt a bit about of Peter's pain and his denial of Jesus. Matthew 14, verses 66 to 72. So there he is with John. John knew people in the court. He knew the high priest and he knew people there. So Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you are talking about, he said. And he went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around them, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. And he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the cock crowed the second time. And then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he woke, broke down and he wept. And Luke adds in his account that the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And also that he went outside and wept bitterly. Can you feel something of Peter's pain as he's thinking about his Lord and all of the promises and oaths that he'd made to follow Jesus and to be right there with him right the way through even to death as he begins to realise that he's failed to live up to his own expectations when Jesus looked him in the eyes straight at him the moment the cockerel crowed just imagine that gut-wrenching sense of failure and weakness that overwhelmed Peter and the horror of what he'd just done and that sense of failure. His only response was to go out into the dark and cold and weep bitterly as his failure for forsaking his best friend well maybe in some way you can identify with Peter and his bitter tears maybe you've had a a life maybe your life is in tatters 
when Hal David wrote those lyrics, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. He saw the pain and suffering of life and he knew the solution and he knew where it came from. John is known as the Apostle of Love. In his Gospel and Epistles, he uses the word love a staggering 109 times. In his Gospel, he uses it 39 times, compared to all the other three Gospels put together, only 36 times. And in 1 John alone, he uses the word love 30 times. It's also worth noting that he, throughout his gospel, John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was acutely aware that he was loved and that love was God's highest priority. In fact, love was God's very essence. In his epistle, he writes several times that God is love. So it's not surprising to find that John decided to record this loving encounter between the risen Lord and his discouraged disciple, Peter. So there's no record of any verbal exchange between Peter and the Lord after his resurrection until now. Probably Peter would have shrunk from eye contact or any contact with Jesus or he would have been at the back of any gathering where Jesus had appeared. On this particular day, he was probably at a loss to know what to do with himself. What was going to happen now? Now he denied his Lord. So he turned to do something which he was familiar with, and he went off fishing. He probably thought that his career as a disciple, as an apostle, was over. And he couldn't possibly be used in the kingdom of God now. He'd really messed up big time, as they say. Well, he'd been out all night. Whether he was concentrating on the job or not, maybe there were just no fish in the lake that night, but they caught nothing. Nothing. Probably added to his sense of failure. I can't even fish now. What is wrong with me? What has gone wrong? I'm such a failure. He was probably quite depressed about his lot that morning and he probably missed the sun rising over the eastern shore of the lake. But we read early in the morning. See, it wasn't something, it wasn't just a chance meeting that was going on here. This is Jesus intending to meet with Peter. It was a deliberate appointment. Jesus knew how Peter was feeling. So it says that the disciples saw a figure on the shore calling out, Friends, haven't you caught any fish? That's a cheerful voice. Who's that? You can just begin to sense a little bit of a lift there, can't you? Note how Jesus' complete understanding of the situation Peter is in no fish how he relates to Peter's immediate concern and the thing that's troubling him at that very moment and the term of endearment friends haven't you caught any fish 
No fish tonight, came the depressed reply. See, Jesus is always very practical and he meets them in their need. Cast your nets over the right-hand side of your boat and you'll find some. Peter probably thought, well, no harm in trying. Maybe he had a little sense of deja vu, who knows. And then to their surprise, they had perhaps the biggest catch of their lives. And as they were hauling the fish in, John said to Peter, It's the Lord. He reminds them probably of Luke 5, Jesus' calling of Peter when they had that miraculous catch of fish. If you remember when the the, the, the nets began to tear and Peter was called and realized that he was indeed the Lord. Peter, overjoyed, jumps into the water. Never mind the fish, never mind the others. I think he somehow senses that Jesus has come to see him and him alone. And there's something going on. And Peter's beginning to get excited once again. So when these poor, cold, hungry fishermen got to the shore, they see that Jesus has a nice, warm fire with some fish and bread slowly cooking. Food's always a good place to start, especially with hungry fishermen. In most cultures of the world, food is much more than just filling your stomach. It's um, often the way to a person's heart. A place of building relationships, of repairing relationships, of renewal. It's worth noting, though, that although Jesus had food on the go, wherever he got it from, um, he never left in dis- uh, invites the disciples to contribute some of the fish that they just caught. Um, it's an important point for Peter, I think, who feels a failure with nothing to contribute. <clears throat> Remember that it was Jesus who enabled them in the first place to catch those fish that they're now contributing to that meal so as they drag the net ashore John notes that even with so many fish that net did not tear and they count them 153 now to us 153 fish doesn't mean a great deal unless you're a fisherman in the river Tame then maybe that means a lot but obviously to actually note down that the 153 fish to a fisherman in Galilee probably means a staggering amount, an unbelievable amount of fish, which is why John has actually recorded that number here. Um, Unbelievable and a remarkable miracle designed to remind Peter of his calling, to encourage him in the present and give him hope for the future. Come and have breakfast, Jesus said. Music to hard-working, despondent fishermen's ears. But there was that element of mystery about Jesus, a little bit like the Emmaus Road experience. So they ate and were satisfied. And no doubt there was not much talking going on while they were eating their breakfast. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus began to engage with Peter. He says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? 
can just imagine, and I think there is a broad sweep of Jesus' hands as he indicates the things around him, the people, the boats, the nets, the food, the countryside, the lake. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he says. But underneath, he's probably thinking, actually, that's not my problem. Lord, you know I love you. But my problem is, I feel a failure. I've messed up. I've let you down. I'm no good as your disciple. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Peter probably doesn't quite get it yet, knowing Peter. So the second time the Lord asks him, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And this time Peter's probably beginning to feel something. Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And his curiosity is aroused. Jesus says, take care of my sheep. Meanwhile, Peter's probably wondering where he's leading to. What is Jesus doing? What's he going to say next? Is he going to tell me that actually, Peter, I'm sorry, but you've failed I really can't use you. You've messed up. Just go back to your boats. Go back to your fishing, Peter. And I wish you all the best. But I really can't use you anymore. I'm sorry. But the third time, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And John records that Peter was hurt. Peter was hurt. He felt something deeply in his heart. Because Jesus asked him the same question a third time. By now I imagine Peter would have got the message. What is important to Jesus is that Peter loves him, not that he has failed. Peter replied the third time, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. To which Jesus replied, feed my sheep. And then he proceeds to say, Peter, you will die for me. Remember you said that you were going to die for me? And I said, no, actually, Peter, you won't. You're going to deny me three times. Well, now he's saying to Peter, actually, you will die for me. But just follow me now. Just follow me now. Just the same way that you've been doing for the last three years. Carry on doing that, Peter. Be encouraged. Don't lose heart. I haven't given up on you. Just keep going. But don't forget, keep on loving me. That's the important thing. Imagine Peter's relief. Forgiven, restored. And Jesus didn't even mention his failures. He didn't even mention mention his denial. The message that Jesus was giving to Peter and that John the Apostle of Love wants his readers to get is that the supreme act of devotion to God is to love him. Our track records count for nothing if we do not love him above all. Jesus said when he was questioned about the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This is the first and greatest commandment. And it's not an option. It is a commandment. You know, when we fail to love God, it can have serious consequences in our lives and in the church. Just turn for a moment to Revelation 2, where John writes again about love to the church in Ephesus. Great church in Ephesus, doing really well. Paul spent a lot of time there. But there's a message from the Spirit to the church in Ephesus. Revelation 2 and verse 4. Spirit says, yet... No, hold on a minute. Um, Start for verse 2. Spirit says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them to be false. You have persevered and endured hardship to my name and you've not grown weary. That's good stuff. Yet, the Spirit says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And then he says, Consider how far you have fallen. That is a serious word. Consider how far you have fallen. That church in Ephesus were doing really great by human standards. But the Spirit says, Consider how far you have fallen. And then he says, Repent and turn around. If you don't, I will come and remove your lampstand. That's quite shocking. Paul writes in Corinthians 13, These three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Peter denied his Lord three times. The Lord, reflecting that, asked him if he loved him three times. Now we're going to ask ourselves, do we really, really, really love the Lord? We're going to have an opportunity uh, during communion to affirm our love for him as we sing I love you Lord three times. That's coming up during our communion, which Philip's going to lead in a moment, um, in order to identify with Peter's reinstatement. But for now we're going to stand and sing, I saw a new vision of Jesus. Um, It's a beautiful song which will lead us into the (coughs) communion. I saw a new vision of Jesus, a view I had not seen here before, beholding in glory so wondrous, with beauty I had to adore. And you can just imagine Peter standing there on the shore of his weakness. I stood on the shores of my weakness. And tonight, if you feel your weakness, maybe you're standing on the shore of your weakness and gazed at the brink of such fear. T'was then that I saw him in newness, regarding him fair 
and so dear. My Saviour will never forsake me. Unveiling his merciful face, his presence and promise almighty, redeeming his loved ones by grace. Let's stand and sing.